0: Let's pray. Lord, help us to stand in your gospel today. Help us to stand in your gospel tomorrow. Help us to stand in your gospel until we see your son face to face. Lord, give us ears to hear your word right now, hearts that desire to obey your word. Would you use it to convict us, to correct us, and change us so that we will look more like your glorious son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So during my senior year of high school, late into my senior year of high school, that's when the Lord saved me. And shortly after that, I had a ceremony of sorts. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. And it had to deal with all of the music that I loved listening to before I got saved, particularly hip-hop. So I didn't drive over my CDs like some people would have done back in the mid-2000s but I did get rid of a bunch of them. This genre of music, hip-hop, that I loved so much, it just didn't seem to glorify God or to honor his word in any sort of way. Or so I thought. Because shortly after that is when I was introduced to a bunch of Christian rappers that I didn't even know that was an actual thing. People like the Ambassador or Flame or The Truth or the group Cross Movement among others, and then a whole other group of of these Christian artists, these Christian rappers, who called themselves the 116 clique, made up of Lecrae and Tadashi and Trip Lee and others, and their sort of motto or mantra was Romans 116, which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I really enjoyed their music. I still do. I love that motto. I still do. But early on in my Christian life, I didn't quite understand the unashamed portion of it. I figured that everybody, as soon as they heard the gospel, would want to follow Jesus like I did when I heard the gospel clearly. They will want to identify with him. But then I quickly also learned that that was not necessarily true. Whether it was the indifference of friends that I would talk to, or the condescending, "That's good for you," that I would hear from family members, or from professors and other students who made it their aim to try to tear down the claims of Jesus Christ on college campuses. And there was even this one day that I remember vividly of being in a barber shop getting my hair cut at the time, sharing that I was a Christian and then the barber putting on a video that was supposed to open my eyes to the real truth about Jesus. This video, whatever that video was, was trying to tear down the claims of Christ and Christianity. Now, the ironic part of this barber trying to open my eyes is that since I didn't have my glasses on, I couldn't see the video. (laughs) But I did hear it. And what I heard troubled me, Because it was clear that whoever was in this video was trying to tear down the claims of this Jesus who saved me and who I love so much. So then the unashamed model started making a little bit more sense in my life. And didn't Jesus teach a little bit about this, where he says that whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of of his father and the holy angels. Why would Jesus issue this kind of warning to his followers? Why would the Apostle Paul go out of his way to say that he is unashamed of the gospel? And what about you? As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you tempted into shame for naming the name of Christ? Are we tempted by the world around us who's becoming more and more opposed to the teachings of Christ, are we tempted to shy away with this gospel message that we have? Please meet me if you haven't done so already in the letter of 2 Timothy. As far as the end of your Bible, we are continuing in this letter from Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have written because he was in prison awaiting his coming death. But on Paul's mind and heart at this time while he's in this Roman prison, is the gospel going forth, and his son in the faith, Timothy, continuing on in this gospel, or standing in this gospel as we were just singing about. Last week, we started with this introduction to the epistle where Paul focused on Timothy's sincere faith, this sincere faith that was shared, that was passed down, that was given from God, it was to be stewarded well, and it was stewarded well by people who came before Paul and even by uh, Lois and Eunice, shared the gospel with Timothy but also shared the fact that this faith that we have has a substance it has a root and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Paul's trying to do in this entire letter therefore is to remind Timothy come what may continue to stand on the gospel continue to proclaim the gospel even if suffering and hardships come as a result and trust in the fact that God will guard the gospel, until that last day. In other words, Paul was saying to Timothy throughout this letter, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we should not be ashamed of the gospel either. Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll start at verse 6. This is God's word. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, here's the main point if you're taking notes for our time together in God's Word. Since God guards the gospel, be unashamed of proclaiming it and suffering for it. Since God guards the gospel, be unashamed of proclaiming it and suffering for it. And please keep the Bible open as we go through this passage. If you have the passage in front of you, you can probably quickly notice that there's some repetition that's happening in this passage. There's themes of suffering, and there's themes of being unashamed, but then you have the gospel message that's sandwiched in the middle. And because of this structure, we're going to zoom in on the center of the passage first, the message of the gospel. And then we're going to pan out to its implications on suffering and being unashamed and how the Lord himself equips us to do just that. So in other words, here's point one. The gospel is God's gracious plan. We'll start with the gospel message, which starts at verse 9. Secondly, the gospel is worth suffering for. And we'll start to pan out a bit, looking at verse 8, looking at verse 12. And then lastly, God equips his gospel workers. For that, we'll focus on verses six and seven. We will start with the gospel is God's gracious plan. In this section, Timothy, Paul is, is thanking God for Timothy and his sincere faith, reminding Timothy of the source and substance of his faith. And he wants him to know that he needs to stand and continue to stand in the gospel. Timothy was a pastor, a young pastor who would have been at this church in Ephesus for several years at this point. And Paul knew Timothy by this point for probably around 20 years. So they knew each other for a long time. So then, why would Paul give this reminder about the gospel? Well, I think this should be instructive to all of us that we, as followers of Jesus, do not and should not ever move beyond the gospel. It's not as if there's another better, more mature message that we're going to get to when we grow in our faith. We need to continually be reminded of of the gospel and live in light of the hope of the gospel every single day. And Paul wanted to make sure Timothy was reminded of this gospel truth. And that's why this section, Paul spends a bunch of time talking about the gospel message. Look at verse 8 says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or about our Lord. And in that, he's talking about the gospel. And Paul is telling Timothy that he should also expect that this gospel message and proclaiming it is going to come with suffering for it. In verses 9 through 11, he goes on to explain in full what this gospel message is by giving this very, very long statement, talking about all the implications of this gospel message that Timothy should be proclaiming. Let me restart in verse 8 again, and then we'll go to verse 9. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, the gospel message, nor of me, his prisoner, we'll get to later but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he goes on in verse 9, "...who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the, the ages began, which is now have been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." And we can stop right there for now. We can learn from this that the Lord saved us by his good and gracious sovereign will. And by the word sovereign, I just mean that this is exactly what Paul says, a plan that God had before the ages began, which means that Jesus coming in in the flesh to the world to die on the cross and rise from the grave was not plan B or C. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were not scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. This was God's good plan for his creation from before the foundation of the world. The gospel message, therefore, is not something that Timothy would have worked for. It was was grace. It was a gift that he was supposed to receive by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For some, when we think about this gospel being a gift of grace, some of us might be encouraged by that, but some of us might hear and feel the tension in that, right? So if God's gospel is the sovereign plan of God, then why does it need to be shared? Like Paul telling Timothy to share the gospel. Timothy was a pastor attending to his flock, but he also had the responsibility of sharing the gospel, not just with the flock, but also with anybody else. He was also encouraged to do the work of an evangelist to share the gospel. But why share the gospel if God knows his people already? Doesn't God know? Isn't God sovereign? Oh, he is. And it's true that Christians sometimes can treat evangelism as if it's all on us, right? So you might see even numbers or dates and people saying, if we would just do this and share the gospel with X amount of people, then we can bring in the kingdom of God by 2030, or insert whatever date. That's an extreme we want to avoid. But on the other hand, the emphasis or sometimes an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God might lead some believers to think, why do I need to do that? God's going to sort it all out at the end. Well, in the Bible, this tension is actually not a tension. It's all right there in that same passage. Share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. And the gospel has been proclaimed from the foundation of the world. You've been saved by his grace. That doesn't seem like it's a problem biblically. It's not a problem for Paul, and it should not be a problem for us. J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, helpfully states the following, where he says, In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies, They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together, which means since God does the saving, we should be content to do the proclaiming and trust that he will save people. Paul here is also acknowledging the fact that Timothy was saved just like Paul was saved, not just to receive this gift of salvation, but they were saved and they were also called. They received a holy calling, a calling that was also before the foundation of the world. And we'll talk more about this calling later. But this sovereign plan of salvation appeared in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you look again at verse 10, it says, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. The gospel message appeared or was manifested through the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. Quick aside about manifesting. I'm not sure if you heard this word used very much. It's become more and more popular over the years, so I'll address it briefly. To manifest means to make appear or to speak into existence. Biblically, only God can do that. None of us moving on from manifesting. But this is exactly what happened when Jesus appeared, when he came into the world. The gospel that was declared before the foundation of the world came, the gospel message came through Jesus Christ as he came into this world in the flesh, meaning Jesus eternally exists. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit eternally existed in perfect harmony and unity as the triune God. But at the fullness of time, just the right time, Jesus Christ was sent to this world on a mission. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made for him and through him and for his glory. And Jesus appeared in this world in the flesh. Born in the city of David, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God's people, but he came here on a rescue mission. He came here to save sinners from the penalty of their sin that they deserved. He came to reconcile them with the good and holy and righteous God. He came to rescue them from the domain of darkness and bring them into God's marvelous light. And Jesus did that by completely submitting to the will of the Father by being arrested, by being hung on a criminal's cross, by being crucified, agonizing in pain, not just from Roman torture methods, but for taking on the full wrath of the sin of the world on the cross. But Jesus' death was actually doing the defeating of death. Look again at verse 10, where it says, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus Christ was crucified, and he was buried, and he rose from the grave, defeating death itself in the process. And in his resurrection, he brought life and still brings life to all who will put their faith and their trust in him alone for salvation. He brings life and immortality, meaning that if we are in Christ We have been raised to new life, and on the last day, we will be raised to new life with him. If you're here listening and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you will face death one day, and you will also face judgment that you and I deserve for our sin. But Jesus already defeated death on your behalf. As a friend of mine once said, Jesus already did the hard part. Put your faith and hope in Jesus by faith to death today. And you can have victory over sin, over shame, and even over death. Brothers and sisters, this gospel message, this gracious plan that God has from before the foundation of the world has not been revoked from you. He will not take it back. He has not changed his mind, which means that if you belong to him, You still belong to him today. That should be good news for us. He brought you into eternal life already, the abundant life now, and one day will bring you into everlasting life with him where you will have joy to the full so that we cannot even explain. Brothers and sisters, keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and never recover from your salvation. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh doctor turned pastor, had an extensive ministry over in the UK, particularly at Westminster Chapel. He was there serving as pastor for many years through World War II, through many different cultural changes that happened in the UK, the, the, the speed of the sectorization of the United Kingdom, specifically after World War II, and a church that was becoming, or a church culture that was becoming more and more progressive more and more secular after he passed away his daughter was asked about what was the key to to dr martin lloyd jones's successful ministry over there in london and here's what his daughter said about dr martin lloyd jones he never recovered from the fact that god saved him he never recovered he never got over it And that's even ironic because he formerly was a doctor. Isn't that beautiful? Brothers and sisters, never recover from the fact that God loves you. Don't get over it. Don't move on from it. He is our hope, and he wants us to keep trusting in him. We should not be ashamed, then, therefore, of proclaiming this gospel message, which brings us to point. Number two, the gospel is worth suffering for. The gospel is worth suffering for. Several years ago, I was helping to lead a Bible study at a church down in Miami through the book of Hebrews, I believe. Someone came up after the Bible study, and he was very upset with me because there was a lot of talk in that Bible study about enduring during times of suffering. His objection was, God's people don't suffer. God would not allow that. Oh, so I tried to point him to the Bible. I even talked about Paul, and he was like, Yeah, but that was just for Paul. See, he was a, a Pharisee. He persecuted the church, and that's why his suffering was so great. There was no reasoning with this guy. He left in his anger, furious about the fact that God could allow his people to experience hardships and suffering. Now, some of us might not be bold enough to say that out loud because that sounds like a prosperity gospel, right? But do we live like that's true? Do we respond to suffering that might come up in our lives as if that cannot be the plan of God for our lives? That we should be going from glory to glory all the way until we see Jesus That our lives should be free from suffering. Well, I think we can look right at the words of Jesus and know that that's not exactly true, right? What did Jesus say about us in this world? He said, "In this world, you will have trouble." You said it, Terry. He said, "We will have trouble." He didn't hide it. It's not in small print that we couldn't see. He said, "In this world, you will have trouble." He also said, don't be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first. And Paul picks up these teachings, but not only teaches it, he lives it out. The Apostle Paul throughout many of his letters talks about not only his ministry, not only preaching the gospel, but also the suffering that came along with it. He explains that in full in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which you could read later. He even talks about after that, the thorn in his side that the Lord gave him to humble him. That the Lord gave him to humble him. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy of his own suffering and encourages Timothy to press on as he faces suffering. If we look at verse 8 and verse 12, these verses provide the sort of bookends for this section. And in this section, in those verses in particular, you see, now that we've zoomed out of the gospel message that's in the center, you see this theme of being unashamed about the gospel and suffering for the gospel's sake that comes up over and over and over again. Look at verse 8, where he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, the gospel, nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the message of the gospel, but don't be ashamed of me either. That might be an instrument, uh, an instrumenting, interesting placement of that phrase, if we think about it. Why would Paul say, don't be ashamed of me? Well, if you know about Paul, you know that he was opposed by many people He was even opposed by people who once said that they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, so many of these people left and deserted Paul when things got hard for him. That's why he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. And then he names names of all the people that left him. Brothers and sisters, how quick are you to associate with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Or how quick are you to disassociate yourself? It might be easy to see a a street preacher, for example, and kind of walk by so that they don't stop you, kind of inwardly or outwardly roll your eyes or sort of scoff like, I wish that brother was more mature like me, right? He should know that that's not a good way to share the gospel. He should do it like I'm doing it or even in our relationships with non-Christians, right? Sometimes we might aim to come across as non-threatening as possible. Like, let me not mention Jesus right now, even though I feel like I should. They're probably expecting that. Let me not mention church so much, because I don't want them to think of me like them when they hear the word Christian, right? I think I'm guilty of that as well. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me, even if your association with me might bring you more suffering. God's people have long suffered for the sake of the gospel message, right? But God's people have seen it as a joy to suffer for the sake of the gospel's message. They responded with supernatural faith. You might think of Acts chapter 5, for example, when after being arrested for preaching the gospel and being reluctantly released, here's what these followers of Jesus said after they were released from prison in Acts 5.41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted as worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Or even think of the word Christian what we who follow Jesus today will joyfully call ourselves. It actually started as a term of a ridicule. These little Christs, you're such a little Christ. Look at these Christians that was meant to mock us, and yet it's a name that we gladly bear today. And even the cross has gone from being a symbol of death and no hope to being a symbol of life and our eternal hope. Paul encourages Timothy, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Says, don't avoid it, share in it. That word share should remind us that if and when we do suffer for the sake of the gospel, we are not doing that alone. The thought of suffering might seem pretty foreign to us in our country where we have lots of freedoms, but we know and we've seen that the world has become more and more hostile towards the teachings and claims of Christ and even in our countries. But we should also be reminded that it's far worse in the other parts of the world for our brothers and sisters. We should be willing to share in those sufferings. And when we do suffer for the name of Christ, that should remind us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering much greater harm. Websites like Persecution.org or Open Doors International can help us to find more information about what's happening in churches and places all over the world, from Africa to Asia, who are being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. It should encourage us to pray. It should encourage us to give towards the sake of the gospel going out to other nations. But it also should motivate us in and how we proclaim the gospel here. And Paul was sharing all this to try to motivate Timothy in his sharing of the gospel. He's saying, remember, this gospel was passed down to you. You have an inheritance. You've been given this to rightly steward. Even if you're going to be persecuted for it, you need to share it. It's worth it. And notice... That Paul doesn't just tell Timothy, you need to do this in your own strength. You need to man up. No, he says that this sharing can be done by the power of God. The strength that God gives, the endurance that God gives, the grace and mercy that God gives. And this should also remind us, as we suffer for the sake of naming Christ, that we are not suffering alone, not just because of persecuted brothers and sisters, but because our Lord also suffered for us and before us. Jesus was known as the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was scorned and he was mocked for the ones who would eventually come to love him. He was not believed by even his own family members, which means the Lord Jesus understands if you feel like you're the only one in your family standing for the gospel. He says, press on. Remember your siblings that are suffering, and remember the suffering of your Lord Jesus Christ. He understands. And Paul seeks to close this loop in this being unashamed of the gospel and also being willing to suffer for the gospel's sake in verse 12. Look down at verse 12, where he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Again, linking this suffering with being unashamed of the gospel. Paul is saying basically that comes with the gig. If you are going to proclaim the gospel message at some point, in some way, shape, or form, people will oppose you for it. Expect it to happen. But where does his confidence come from? Paul says, I know in whom I have believed. I trust God and I know that God will guard or entrust or he will keep sealed everything that he's entrusted into me until the last day. God will not go bad on his promises. He will not revoke his word. He will keep it until the very end. Another quick aside, I think many people's opposition to Christianity or to the faith might be because of what has been coined as the problem of evil. Christian, if you ever heard of that phrase before, the problem of evil, meaning if God is so good, if he's so powerful, then why is there suffering? Why does he do anything about it? But again, Paul doesn't seem to be caught up in that. It doesn't seem to be confusing for him. In fact, Paul assumes there's going to be suffering part of even following Jesus. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, the problem of evil, and not that there's not a good and right place to have those discussions about it, it's very important to talk about, but maybe, maybe it assumes a Savior that would shield us from all suffering as opposed to a Savior that entered into our suffering with us and for us so that we could be free from eternal suffering. Jesus suffered in our place so that on that last day that we could enter into eternal joy. And that's the day that Paul is referring to when he says, that God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul, remember, is approaching his own death. He's about to finish his race. He has a crown of righteousness in view. He knows that his labor will be over soon, just like his life will be over soon. Paul's basically saying, the Lord will sort out all of my suffering and all of my labor for his glory and my good. Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim Elliot, who was herself acquainted with lots of suffering and grief, after her husband was martyred, writes this, and suffering is never for nothing. She writes, there have been some hard things in my life, of course, as there have been in yours, and I cannot say I know exactly what you're going through, but I can say that I know the one who knows. As I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. And if we'll trust him for it, we can come through to the unshakable assurance that he is in charge. He has a loving purpose and he can transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. Sounds like she read Romans 8.28, 28, Right? And we know, for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. That cannot be wishful thinking for us. That can just not. That cannot just be a, a bumper sticker or a plaque that we have in our home. That cannot just be a tweetable statement or an exable statement, whatever they call Twitter now. This needs to be the root of our confidence. In other words, God's saying that I will guard my work and I will guard my workers for the task until the last day. Now, you might be here thinking, what does this mean for me necessarily? I'm not an apostle. I'm not a pastor. How does this fit or this applies? This brings us to third point, the point three. God equips his gospel workers. God equips his gospel workers. Let's look at verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul starts this section by telling Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. He's referring to Timothy's sincere faith that he already talked about in verses 1 through 5. Because of your sincere faith, fan into flame the gift that you've been given. This gift is compared to a fire, a fire that can either be kindled so it remains a flame or fire that can wither out if unattended to. And we might know this if we've been camping before or if we like camping or even if we have grilled on a charcoal grill. If you don't tend to that fire, then that flame eventually will lose its fire. And at that point, it doesn't do what it's intended to do. It doesn't provide warmth. It doesn't cook anything. It doesn't provide heat. It doesn't even provide light. All you have left, once the flame goes out, is smoke. Paul tells Timothy here, do not let the flame of this gift to go out. But what is Paul talking about when he says gift? He says, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And some people have used this verse to try to argue that that gift is the Holy Spirit. So fan into flame the gift of God meaning stir up the gift, meaning speak in tongues. That's how other people have interpreted this verse to me. And I do think the Holy Spirit is in view in this section, but not in this verse, not verse 6. God's people receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And Timothy had a reputation for being a faithful disciple even before Paul met him. You can look at Acts 16 for that. So Paul did not give Timothy the gift of the Holy Spirit. He already had the Holy Spirit. He was sealed with the Holy Spirit. That was done. But even listen to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul is telling Timothy to not despise his youth. He says, don't despise your youth. You need to set an example. Give yourself to the reading of the word, of the scriptures. And then he says in verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, do not neglect the gifts you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And even in chapter 5, verse 22 of 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, do not lay your hands hastily on others, in reference to appointing elders at the church. So then we have to think, what is this laying of hands talking about? This is directly referring to Timothy's pastoral ministry. That's what he's talking about there in verse 6 where Paul and the other elders appointed Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 are in the same vein as 1 Timothy 4, 14. Fan into flame the gift that you have or do not neglect the gift that you have because when flames are neglected, the fire goes out. That means if we allow it, the calling that God has given us, the ministry that God has entrusted us to, can be snuffed out or extinguished if we don't tend to it. Or if we ten- if don't tend to the work that the Lord calls us to, the flame can also go out in our lives spiritually. For anyone who might feel far away from the Lord this morning, or maybe you're in a dry season, that might be due to suffering, That might be due to hardships. I want to put that part of it to the side. The Lord is with you in your suffering. The Lord is with you as you're going through hardships. But I do want to ask, could it be that if you're in a dry season of your life, that you have not fanned the flame, the gift that the God has given you? Meaning, you've not served him. You've not stewarded the responsibility he's given you to share his gospel with others. Maybe there's a dryness because your faith has become all about you at this point. Now, I don't want to assume that's the case, but I think that we should at least ask ourselves that question. And ask the Lord to search our hearts. This gift is also referenced in verse 9, where Paul says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, Timothy and Paul were not only called into salvation, but they were called into the gospel ministry. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, for which is why I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Paul's holy calling into the ministry was to be an apostle or a preacher and a teacher. And then Paul says in verse 12, this is why I suffer as I do. Isn't that Interesting. Paul is saying, I'm ministering for the gospel, and therefore, that is why I'm suffering. This should remind us as a church to pray for our pastors, to pray for our elders, to pray for those who serve our church in word ministry. Pray for us to watch our lives and also to watch our doctrine. Pray for our unity. Pray for us to persevere in Christ and serve you all, With joy, not begrudgingly. Because the work of the ministry does involve suffering. But it is also a gift and a joy that we have from the Lord. But again, this calling, this gift that Timothy is charged to stir up, that Paul is telling Timothy, is not exclusive to Paul and Timothy. Just think of the Great Commission, where the Lord Jesus stood... And said, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. Kids in the room. Who was Jesus talking to when he said that? When he said make disciples of all nations? Abram? He was talking to the disciples. He was talking to his followers. Now we know that doesn't mean that there was only their responsibility to make disciples. Right? We can just read the book of Acts for that but the job of a disciple was to, or is to, make disciples, right? Meaning that process goes on and on, and it continues. In other words, when Jesus saves us, he also sends us. Those who are called into salvation are also called into the gospel ministry, and that includes you if you are a Christian here. So whether you are vocationally in the military or work for our government, and we thank you for what you do, remember that Jesus is actually your commanding officer, and above all, you must obey him. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you homeschool at the house, you have been sent to serve your first mission field. That includes discipling your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Your ministry, if you are a stay-at-home mom and if you are homeschooling, is gospel ministry. And do not let anybody tell you otherwise. It's important to the Lord. You've been charged with that. Before moving up here, I taught for many, many years as a school teacher in Miami, also in England. And my wife can tell you that I often complained about doing that. Because I often saw that my teaching job was getting in the way of the real ministry that I wanted to do. And God was like, no, that is your way of doing ministry in this season. That means if the Lord has given you a job, if the Lord has given you a family, if the Lord has given you a career or schooling right now or children, they are not hindrances to the ministry that he's called you to. They are part of God's plan for you to do the work of the ministry in this season in your life. They are not in your way. They are the way that God wants to use you right now. So then in a funny way, that means that whatever job you have, they're just funding your gospel ministry. They don't know it, but that's what they're doing. And how might that change our joy, even as we go to work tomorrow, if we think of ourselves like that? I am not just a teacher. I am not just a government worker. I am not just a whatever it is of the really important jobs that some of you have that you can't tell me that you actually do. I am on mission from the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you want me to do today, Lord? That might change everything. Let's look at verse 7. Paul tells Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you, through laying all of my hands. But he also says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. And I think we can assume from that verse that Timothy might have struggled with fear in sharing the gospel. I think we might, many of us, at least feel like that in sharing the gospel, right? That there might be fear that comes for it. That might be awkward conversation. There's. It almost feels like there's never a good time to bring up Jesus into the discussion. Or if we think of a good time, it's normally after it's already happened. We're like, darn, I missed it again. But let's remember that the gospel message is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's ridiculous to people. But it was also ridiculous to you before you believed, I'm sure, as it was to me. But I'm so glad that the people who shared the gospel with me put their fear to the side, put their faith in the Lord, and share with me anyway, regardless of how I responded to them. So while fear might be natural for us, this should remind us that what we need is supernatural, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit with us. And I think here what Paul is doing is contrasting what we might feel, in this case, fear, with what we've actually received from the Holy Spirit. Power, love, and self control. He does this also in Romans chapter 8. If you want to look there later, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So Paul is saying that fear is not something that you've received from the Holy Spirit, rather, you've received power and love and self control. And don't we need power, love, and self-control when we try to share the gospel? We do, so that we're not just trying to debate people into the kingdom of God or argue them into faith. We have a sincere love that encourages us to pray and to share for the umpteenth time why they should put their faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did when he talked to the women at the well, out of his love for her, or the woman who was caught in adultery, out of his love for her, or about the power and self-control he displayed when he was talking to the Pharisees over and over and over again, knowing when to engage, knowing when to back away, knowing when to go pray, knowing when to keep the conversation going and how. We have that same access through the Holy Spirit today, brothers and sisters. But as you share the gospel, try don't try to do that alone and on your own. You need power, and God gives us that through the Holy Spirit. Timothy needed to hear that, and I think we all need to hear that too, which is why the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. Have faith. The Lord is with you. And the Holy Spirit can give us faith and confidence to proclaim his word unashamedly, even if it comes with suffering. And the Holy Spirit also even helps us and comforts us in our weaknesses and even in our suffering. And that means, in trying to be unashamed of the gospel in our lives, it means we should share it, we should live out its implications, and we should trust God with the results. Share it, live out its implications, and trust God with the results. If you're struggling with sharing your faith and with sharing the gospel, pray. Ask the Lord to strengthen your faith. Pray. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities. Pray. Ask the Lord to strengthen you. Pray. Ask the Lord to save. He's in the business of doing that. Ours is the job of sharing and persevering, even amidst suffering. I thought a lot about that day in that barber shop with that video that I couldn't quite see, but I heard. I remember driving away from that barbershop, being so mad and angry and frustrated. I was completely caught off guard. Stuff was brought up in the video that I felt like I couldn't really answer that well. I drove home. I sat in the parking lot or in my, my, my parents' home. And what the Lord brought to mind were some other words by the Apostle Paul, which are in Romans 3, chapter 4, where he says, let God be true and every man a liar. Now I think today if I had that same conversation with those guys in the barbershop I could have a much deeper and sound theological conversation. I think I could refute their arguments. But what I needed on that day was let God be true and every man a liar. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. Regardless of proclaiming the gospel, regardless of the suffering that you might face because of it, let God be true, let every man be a liar. Let's live unashamed of proclaiming his gospel and come what may with the results. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask you to help us, to uphold us, help us to stand in your gospel, help us to proclaim your gospel with faith, help us to be good stewards of the faith that has been entrusted to us without shame, without fear, not because of our strength, but because we trust that you Our good God, you give good gifts to your people and you give us the Holy Spirit so that we can endure whatever may come our way. Give us faith in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.